As you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small. And in return, life leaves marks on you. Most of the time, those marks on your body or on your heart are beautiful. Often, though, they hurt. Anthony Bourdain died, um, apparently from uh, committing suicide. And Anthony Bourdain has had quite an effect on my life, and so that was, that was troubling to hear. And yet I find within his content and his writing and uh, the, the, the films that he's produced, that this guy had something to say to the world. And I think this quote is particularly relevant to us today. So I want to invite you to uh, relax. We're going to listen to this song by Noah and uh, do with it what you will, but hopefully it just at least causes you to uh, reflect and consider and try to make some connections in your own life. So this is called Rain Dance by Noah Martis. If you assume that there is no hope, you guarantee that there will be no hope. If you assume that there is an instinct for freedom, that there are opportunities to change things, then there is a possibility that you can contribute to making a better world. Um, I have been paying attention to the world that we find ourselves in right now. And uh, I, like many of you, find myself at a loss of what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say? 
How are we supposed to interact? Parts of this feel familiar. Um, parts feel unfamiliar. And I have mostly stayed out of the larger uh, cultural expression um, that deals with, well, coronavirus, that's a part of it too, uh, protests, um, police brutality, racism. Um, and I have been having a lot of these conversations interpersonally with folks um, but I haven't, I haven't really been very public about it. And one of the reasons why, and I, and I hope this doesn't, it very well could place me in uh, the silent complicity that is pretty normal. And I hope that it doesn't because my, my perspective simply is like, I've been saying these things. Our church has been saying these things before it became part of the common dialogue. And so the thing that I just want to point out this morning, well, the first thing is that um, I do have social media and I do read it a lot. And social media for me is actually not a way to connect. It's a way to uh, engage in uh, the social sciences of finding out what people are doing and what they're thinking. Um, and uh, I think I'd just say, if you're a part of the farmhouse, know that whatever you post reflects us. And there have been a lot of instances where people in my life or who are a part of our church have said things on social media where I thought, I must be a terrible teacher. Because for the last seven years, that's not what we've been talking about here. So I want you to pay attention to that, um, or just heed the words of John Torrance a few weeks ago that said, please stop, please stop posting. Uh, it's not helping the conversation. Um, but the real question for me that has come to my mind, and Amy and I were talking about this briefly, was my big concern right now, and you have the all lives matter debate versus black lives matter, and we have a Wesleyan theology that tells us that all lives do certainly matter. This is called prevenient grace. Um, in our Koinonia liturgy, we say everyone is welcome at the table, and it's not even our table. We are all sharers in this gift. So, of course, we would say every, everybody matters. Um, but there is room to say, do people who find themselves a little bit isolated or excluded, do they know that they matter here? Because it's one thing for us to say it. And so I would, I would go like hashtag just for the farmhouse. Now, part of the larger conversation, absolutely. But for the farmhouse, do black people know that they're included here? Do they know that this is a safe space? Because certainly we believe that. It's written into our Wesleyan heritage. It's written into our church's identity. But do they know that? Um, and there is room to say, like right now, we might have to take special precautions to make sure that they do. Um, and, and remember this, we're a rural church. A few years ago, a woman named June Price came out to a farmhouse conversation. And she had said she was scared as she was driving out here. And she didn't know what was going to happen to her when she arrived at the barn. Now, after conversing with us for a little bit, she immediately was like, but I found a safe sp space amongst all of you. Like, absolutely, that's, that's got to be part of the goal. Um, but you remember, you're a rural church. People assume things about me because I'm a rural pastor. I might have to be a little bit more obvious uh, and explicit in order to make sure that certain stereotypes do not ruin the actual identity that we're trying to propose. So going forward, we do not have a large African-American population in this area, but there are some. Do they know that they matter here? Do they feel safe here? They should, and I would, I would be compelled to say they would be, but do they know that? And here's the, here's the thing I want to confront you all with in concern to this. Let's make it a little bit more personal. And 
uh, let's make it a little bit more to direct to something we have experienced. I have a sister. My sister is not white. My sister uh, is from India, um, which my family ancestry, though you cannot tell, uh, is Indian. And so my si- we adopted my sister from India. And my sister is also deaf. Now, I have heard many people from the farmhouse say, I have watched them interact with Karishma in ways where they say, you matter to us. You're important. We love you. All really good things. However, a couple months ago, I forget which chapter of Acts we were in, but a couple months ago, I brought this up to you all. Because though we say those things, though we try to communicate those things to her, she told me she does not feel like she matters here. That's not okay. And we can say that charisma is included and a part of things all we want. But if she doesn't feel that way, then we have a problem. And that could even be her fault. We could have tried very hard, although I would, I kind of challenge us that we could try harder. Uh, and so maybe it is just her perception, but that perception is true. And we have to work with that perception because she's part of the community. I want you to consider that as an analogy for how we need to be interacting in general. Uh, anything that is going on right now with racism, um, with just the, the general uh, issues with a nation state uh, that is America, um, these are conversations that have to be part of the long game. And we're not going to offer very short, concise, simple answers to any of this. But we do have to keep having the conversation, especially theologically. What does it mean to be a church right now? And I, uh, so I'll just reiterate, please, if you're going to post something on social media, stop and think about it. Uh, and I almost want to offer like a, like a trite, like what would Jesus do <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but the, just be more hesitant before you do anything like that. But the more important thing is, what kind of community are we going to have? And uh, earlier in the year, I had said, I, I hope that one day people are coming out to Metamora, Ohio, because they want to look at, at, at what, what this community has done and be like, there's something special here. And now we've got another dynamic to this. And uh, one, so further research that's needed is there's a place in Georgia called Koinonia Farms, um, I am finding out that a lot of people have not heard of Koinonia Farms. I've never heard of it. Okay. So uh, if you're wanting to do more research, uh, look up Koinonia Farms in Georgia. They still exist. Um, you do know about them to some degree because uh, Habitat for Humanity uh, started because of what they were doing in their small rural community in Georgia. Wow. Um, but I look at Koinonia Farms and I go, that's that's probably a direction that could inspire how we interact out here. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I did, I felt it necessary for us to be a little bit more public. Um, these are very complex issues and there's so much hatred and villainy on both sides of this, of, of, of the issues at hand. And, uh, I won't have it. I refuse to let that define how our church engages with these conversations. So that's that. And in response to that word, um, I want to read for you a hymn that actually doesn't have any musical notation to it because it's so old. This is one of the oldest hymns that we still have written access to. And it's called Where Charity and Love Prevail. So I want to I want to read this hymn for us. And you if you've been around, you'll recognize it because we've we've spoken this hymn many times. Um but it just resonates with truth. And so this is called Where Charity and Love Prevail and I hope this continues to define us as well. Where charity and love prevail, there God is ever found. 
brought here together by Christ's love, by love, are we thus bound. With grateful joy and holy fear, true charity we learn. Let us love, let us with heart and mind and strength now love Christ in return. Forgive we now each other's faults as we our faults confess. And let us love each other well in Christian holiness. Let strife among us be unknown. Let all contention cease. Be Christ the glory that we seek. Be ours his holy peace. Let us recall that in our midst dwells God's begotten Son. As members of his body joined, we are in him made one. Love can exclude no race or creed if honored be God's name. Our common life embraces all whose maker is the same. All right. A Theodicy for the World. Today is part three. Uh, and we have covered quite a bit of ground so far, and we've covered the most banal ground, the, the most difficult ground. But this is about responding to suffering. How do we suffer well? And what does this need to look like in the world we find ourselves in today? And we started this before cultural chaos began. And as that began unfolding, I'm going like, oh, okay, yes, we do actually need to have this conversation. And so I just want to begin uh, with whatever questions you have, okay? So things that you've heard, things that you have maybe thought about even. So if you haven't heard any of our content thus far, that's fine. Um, but I want to begin with your questions because where we are now is we've talked about suffering, We've talked about why this conversation matters. Um, and then we've talked about theodicy and theodicy as the defense of God to make sense of if God is all good and God is all powerful, how is there suffering and evil? And that's what theodicy uh, kind of developed as. And we looked at some of the common ones and we kind of looked at some of the problems with those common theodicies. So we've kind of gone like, we need a new one. We, we, need, to, we, need, to move, we need to move this forward. And um, so that's what we want to do today. We want to offer an alternative theodicy that can help shape how we respond to suffering. And the goal has to be that, not that we just have sensible things in our head, I think that's a part of it, but also that it, it elicits a practical satisfying response that helps us heal through suffering. And that's, that's what we want to start getting into today. Um, and I've mentioned that I have, I have done a lot of funerals. In fact, I, I've done more funerals than I can count. Um, but I've done a lot of tragic funerals. And so I've had to sit in some of the worst situations and hear people responding to suffering and I got to say that the mental, intellectual, theoretical, that perspective shapes the way they're going to move into their suffering more than anything. It is so important. And the cases where people have had a, a really poor mental construct about why suffering happens and what this means about God have struggled the most through that process. And we've had to take time to go like, wait, 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 what if that's not how this works? The people who have gone in with a, a more nuanced perspective of God in the world and why suffering happens, they've found beautiful new ground, ground upon which they walk. So I do think this is important. Um, and we've got, we've got some content here. Uh, Amy has been our, our residential squire in theodicy <laughs> over the past couple, uh, the past few weeks. Um, and this is also something that I've been spending a lot of time on uh, writing about and uh, trying to make these ideas available to the general public. So what, uh, let's start with some of your questions about anything that we've covered or just something you want more clarification on. You get us started today. So um, use the chat. Uh, if, if you want to chime in, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself and, and we'll, we'll, we'll interact that way. Um, but let's start with, with something. And, um, if we have that typical thing, 
where our our participants don't participate. This is true. You're gonna have to step in with some sort of question <laughs> that will get us get us started. We'll see what happens here. <laughs> I happen to know that Amanda asked a question about this. I don't know if you can hear me, Amanda. Um, you had asked a question about this last week or a couple weeks ago and then reiterated it to me the other day. So, you know, did you want to bring that up again about what goodness is or what, what was it exactly that you said? Maybe she's gone. Okay, Amanda Tuttle has been called on. Yes, I'm calling upon Amanda Tuttle to answer the question or ask the question that she had asked us. She says, I'm just looking that up. The uh, question was, what is good? Yes, because we talked about God being good. And what does exactly that mean? So God is all powerful. God is good. How are we okay. going to define that then? Uh, and then um, and Mike Klimmer has texted me a, uh, a thought. Oh, Not necessarily okay. a question, but a thought. So we'll, we'll get into that too. Um, I do have my phone here. Um, if you can, you, Mike has a special circumstance because they're like on a TV in a big room. Uh, so I would say most people use the chat. Mike, you're good because I understand your situation. Um, so I'll, I'll keep this here just in case more come. Um, so, yes. so the question is, what is good? Where in the Bible does it say that God is good? These are good questions. These are good questions. But how do we know they're good questions? Because they bring us formation. <laughs> so the, the issue with any definition of good is it's empirical. So you, you know good by, by seeing it. It's also quite subjective, right? Is this a Kantian kind of universal, if it's good in one place, it's good in another? It, it's, or are we talking about that I know it when I see it kind of goodness? That's where most people go, but right. we, all, we all know that that's not good enough, right? Um, Hold on a second here. Okay. Uh, we know that that's not good enough to say, I, I'll know it when I see it. Right. So we, we have to, to have we have to have a way to measure goodness, but that's really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. This is the problem with ethics in general is, you know, even on a postmodern side, people will say, like, it's all relative, except you can't do this because that's bad. Okay, well, who gets to decide if that's bad exactly. or if that's good? Mm -hmm. And so you're wrestling with a issue of human finitude of how do we even create a truth about what's good and therefore what's not good? And we're going to find messiness in the midst of that because you might say something's good and I'll be like, oh, well, I think that's bad. Exactly. Or it might be good for that group, but it's not good for this. And so, and so you have to come up with a way to go, this is what goodness is. I would think this even informs what you were talking about earlier when, it, when we talk about inviting people into our space or making them feel safe here. We often say, well, you know, do unto others as you would have done to you. But what if to that person mm -hmm. that is not good? You need to know the person well enough to understand what good would be for them, what what, for example, you talk about your, your sister Ishi, what does she want us to do for her? We may have an idea in our head of, this mm. is how we welcome her. If that doesn't work for her, then that's not helping. So maybe you could even take that then to a higher level. If something seems good to me, but not to you, then obviously there's too much subjectivity there. We need to right. find what is that universal goodness. Yeah, and that, but that phrase, universal goodness, is loaded with problems, of right? Course. But we have to try. And and the the great excuse that we have, Amanda, is that we can throw out a theological bent uh, that in other academic circles isn't always appropriate. But we would say this is part of our understanding. Now, I as far as what the Bible says about God being good, um, and Bob even listed out one, that it does seem to be directly referenced sometimes, but it's more of an implied bias throughout the whole, the whole narrative. What I think is important in this conversation, however, is Genesis 1. Because Genesis 1 shows us a transcendent, okay? So a, a being that is outside of human finitude, okay? A phrase that we would use in metaphysics is ontologically absolute and ontologically different, 
All right. So you've heard me bring this up when I say, you know, people get upset that I don't say the word God a lot. And one of the reasons that I do is because, or that I don't say the word God a lot is because if God is actually transcendent, then no words, phrases, language are ever going to actually articulate what that is. It has to be beyond us. It has to be different. Okay. So the Bible starts with this picture that God exists outside of um, created experience. And in, and, and in order for God to actually be transcendent, God has to be outside of created experience. Um, here's where this gets important with Genesis 1, is that the result of creation is that it is good. Okay? Right. And good, it's the Hebrew word tov. Uh, tov has some layered implications on their understanding of goodness because it doesn't say that creation is perfect, right? It doesn't say, uh, and God said, let there be light and for evening and there was morning the first day and it was, it was all perfect. It says good. And so that's an interesting conversation to have. Um, but if the result of this transcendent being's actions are good, that makes us then assume that this transcendent being is good. So the idea of God being good is required if we think that creation is good. If we think that the act of life and experience is good, that it has to come from it has to come from the cause. Right? Whatever that being is like will be what this is like. This becomes really important as you start working through theodicy because if you say that God ordains suffering and evil, well, then God is not good because that suffering and evil has to come from that being. Right. So the fact that Genesis is pointing out God creates and it's good, it's kind of going that the goodness of creation has to come from that being. Okay. Now this, if you, hopefully you're picking up like, oh, this is going to be a problem because suffering and evil is in the world. So that, that is yes. an issue for us. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that I would say there. Uh, if you want more cohesive thinking on that, especially this metaphysical perspective, so metaphysical is outside of the natural. Um, Christians, by default, are metaphysical thinkers because we, we say that there's something beyond nature. Um, there is a book called The Experience of God, uh, being consciousness and bliss that I would recommend, though Amy could attest to how difficult that book is to get through. Um, it takes some thinking. You want to go through it slowly. Um, or there... You can listen to him online and that might be easier. Yeah, and so this I've is by, by David Bentley Hart. And to hear him articulate the metaphysical approach to transcendence might be one of the most necessary things in Western Christianity today because we do not have a very good picture of God. The way that churches talk about God, I think, is, is dangerous. Um, they tried to make it easier, and in doing so, we have, uh, we have potentially ruined our understanding of who God is in comparison to us. I would, so. I would say maybe diminished. Diminished. Because I know um, Hart talks about that thing that we have to be careful while speaking of God as, a, as outside of creation or transcendent also does not mean that it's a being separate from, like a being separate from other beings. It's hard to even explain, but it's like a beingness. Yeah. It has, and, yeah. it, and it has to be if transcendence is, yes. is true. Right. Um, okay, so Amanda, I hope that uh, answered your question, though you just said something in the chat. In that reference above, the word for good is agathos, and this is what I found for the definition. Agathos means good that acts for the benefit of others. Would that be like moral good? Is there a difference? Um, okay, just that, you know, she was referencing that word. And um, is that the Greek? Yeah. Okay. Um, Amanda, are you using, um, hold on here, agathos. Are you using the Septuagint there?
I was just wondering because I was wondering if there's a difference between a moral goodness and a, the goodness of creation being that um, movement always towards complexity, more towards connectedness, and then towards that health and wholeness that we talk about, that, that telos of God. Yep. And okay. are those will, two things connected? Or, um, what did she say? Oh, yeah. The, the verse, the, in the New Testament, it would be in Greek. The Hebrew equivalent would be tov. Um, I don't know what the uh, the assumed definition is of that, um, but uh, be careful with trying to get a definition of good based on a uh, etymology of a word, um, because just just remember that defining good is really complex and it's very difficult for humans to do. Um, now, what Amy just brought up, um, what Amy just brought up is helpful in this subjective conversation because what I had just said about uh, creation comes from transcendent being God and whatever the experience of creation is is dependent on what that being is like this is where it gets important in theology it's because we say that uh, there is a a final direction a final trajectory towards all of this mm-hmm. and that's what Amy means when she says tell us okay there's a there's a, a goal here that all of this is moving to. This is really important within the Odyssey then. Um, Gregory of Nyssa is an Eastern Orthodox uh, patriarch, and he explains that cosmology and eschatology, which is what that final thing, that's eschatology, cosmology and eschatology are the same thing. And so if we want to know what creation is like, we actually have to wait until creation is finished. Right. And Gregory of Nyssa says that creation's not finished until the whole narrative has been brought into that telos, into right. that final goal. And this is important because that's specific to theology, right? And there's not any way for us in our current lifetime to prove that unless the telos happens during our lifetime. It doesn't look like it. So it is a, <laughs> it is a matter of faith. And uh, why, why this is important then is because what we're going to say is like, well, suffering and evil exist. So first we have to figure out, well, why does it exist? If God is good, it shouldn't exist exactly. unless something else comes into play there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're saying that uh, there's a rationality of purpose behind all of this that we will figure out what that full goodness is when it is finished. So the the image that David Bentley Hart uses is that of an author. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that if you want to know what the intention of the author is, you have to you have to read the whole book. You have to go all the way to the end and then you'll understand what the intention of the author is. Um and so any uh intermediate experience during the book can't give you that final conclusion. You have to see how the book ends. And that would be this this theological perspective is that we need we need to see how the story of creation ends, so we can determine whether or not God is good. Uh, and if there is any evil or suffering left as residue once creation is finished, mm-hmm. once the story is finished, then God certainly can't be good. And this is where David Bentley Hart uses that that uh, that quote of if this is true then the kingdom of God is just a dream. Yeah. And living as a human being is actually quite a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Because if God's not good, then at least for me, this is not worth living in. That's scary. And so I, I want to hold on to that God can be good. And, and then Amanda, yeah, this does get back to that question of, well, how do we know what is good? What I would encourage us to look at with within that conversation then is, what are, what are the images that uh, associate with creation as good? And I would say shalom is our best one, um, where everything is in its right place. Uh, everything is experiencing mutual wholeness and health uh, with one another. Um, and so while we still have to make determinations on what that needs to look like in particular circumstances, we do have a lens um, that says, is this, you know, try, try to put into your imagination, what would the world look like if God was completely in charge? 
Okay, what, what's the, the fullness of creation supposed to be? Okay, well, then that's good. Yeah. Now start doing that here. With mm-hmm. the, what does that need to look like in this particular circumstance? And being able to do this practice is actually the issue of free will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That comes up is that you are, in order for suffering and evil to exist, you have to go, well, humans did something to make that happen. And so God is kind of responsible because right. he makes that possibility exist. Especially if we are in the image of God, how can we do these things? Which mm-hmm. is a question that comes up. Yeah. And, and the, the argument that gets made is that humans being able to autonomously choose authentic love is more important than making sure that no suffering and evil can exist at all through their free choices. And so humans are given this, um, this capability that can produce authentic love, but can also not produce that. Right. And God, we would assume that God thinks that's more important than just making sure everything's good all the time. And the reason why is what we talked about last week with determinism. Right. Because if you don't have that, that autonomous ability for authentic love, then what's the point? You're just a mindless machine in a simulation. Exactly. And then again, you're, you're separate. It creates kind of an otherness, you know. So in order to have that connection, you have to have that free will. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the start. And then as we go on here, you know, to understand where that free will comes in as a choice that almost becomes inevitable. Yeah. Well, and so that, that, that's now the thing that we have to work with is mm-hmm. you got determinism on one hand. Right. And we're saying, no, it's not that. But what we're also not saying is that free will is anything. Okay. And this is where that eschatological, teleological, you know, what's the end of the story? That's important. Because what we're saying is that free will is actually rational and that we have this this built-in desire to actually move towards that purpose. So while you might be capable of making any choice, we would not say that God's interaction with humanity is intentional unless it compels you towards that good choice, right? And this is where in the midst of that, yeah, we're still not completely always making the good choices, but is God drawing us towards those good choices? Does that make sense? Sure, that the more you know, the more free you are to know things and the more likely you are. In fact, the more inevitable it would be that you would make a good choice Mm -hmm. that towards, you know, and and he talks in one place about how if a person was a madman, he may choose to run into a burning building to see what it feels like to die that way. But of course, a rational human being would not choose that. Mm -hmm. You're going to choose what's good for you. And so what's important is we have to learn and develop what that goodness is. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of going back to the question that Amanda asked. We have Mm -hmm. to learn what that goodness is and that happens over time, but something has to be at work showing us that goodness. And now that comes back to God has to be good. And here comes your analogy of the parent, the good parent, I would say. Uh, Let me, let me, uh, respond to Mike's. Got a few things to talk about here. Okay. Mike, um, Mike wanted to bring up, um, and he says, Amy, I don't know if this is you, Amy, but Amy and I had a conversation. Probably. Okay. About how male images of God distort oh, yes. theodicies and dominate expectations of God. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> what, what, uh, For pointing that out. Say, say more about that. Um, well, we were talking about how, again, oh, I hope I can remember the conversation, simply that a lot of times the male images can be uh, more authoritarian or perhaps dominating, whereas a, a, a gender neutral or even perhaps a feminine view might be more of the mother parent, the mother parent. Um, but I would say that that can still be a very much a general neutral mm-hmm. Uh, sense of we don't want God to feel to be separate from us that we want that to be eminent in who we are mm-hmm. I don't remember completely I hope Mike will comment a little bit more on that okay Mike <laughs> um, if you remind me I'm sure I'll have more to say yeah I, I I mean generally so using masculine pronouns for God isn't necessarily a problem though it certainly can become one and it certainly has at the same time there's could there could be potential issues for using only feminine pronouns. Exactly. For God, right? I mean, you have it, to think about it both ways. Yeah. 
But in our culture, the masculine one is going to dominate as that's not helping. Right. Um, and this is actually a pretty normal conversation within theological circles right now. Sure. There's no serious theologian that would say that God has a gender. Exactly. Right. It creates a limitation all, upon that. All of these being. are just ways for us to try to describe God. Mm-hmm. And that's where when people go like, you know, you can't, you can't call God a mother because the Bible calls God a father. Yeah, because that metaphor mm-hmm. is helpful. Although the Bible right. also does call God a mother, um, but we certainly wouldn't say that God is male or female because then God is part of the created order and is not ontologically different. And now exactly. that's not God at all. Yeah. So there's a there's just a general problem with referring to God with a gender, uh, because that's not transcendent at right. that point. It's a limiting thing. We're, we're going to use metaphors for God. Mm-hmm. We have Gen- to as humans. Gender will be one. Right. We got to pay attention to whether or not that's helping. Well, and that's so, what I would say that there are times when you could say perhaps God manifests a father energy and times when God manifests a mother energy. I mean, we know that there is right. a different sense there in, in the parenting and in, you know, in the world and creation so that it's appropriate at times to do that. Right. I would say. Well, and this is so Mike, Mike just said, what is the difference between when dad gets mad and when mom gets mm-hmm. mad? That's, um, I do remember him and, saying that now. And again, that can be uh, that can be a different answer in different cultures, even within different family systems, mm-hmm. right? But generally, in our culture, our context today, that has that carries a lot of weight. Yeah, dad gets mad. This is dangerous, right? Uh, potentially abusive. Not as likely with mom. Well, right? and the other thing he said about mother energy is often that's the protective. When when mother is angry, it's almost like the mama bear. You know, the world itself is what she's going to protect her child from. Right. So she may be angry, but it's an anger that is, I need to protect you from these things. Which is actually an image that the Bible uses, the mother Absolutely. hen. Yeah, the idea right. of the mother hen. So that's a case where God is indeed used in a feminine right. way. Yeah, okay. it's pretty cool. Well, so anyway. but that, that is worth pointing out um, mm-hmm. that, the and, and I would just, I would expand this even further. The metaphors we use for God, we have to think about what also that is saying about God. Yeah, and what then again, the suffering and evil Is it Is it Father's Day today? Uh, is it? I, I hope know. not because I didn't, get, I don't Bruce. Pay, I didn't I don't, get Bruce a card. <laughs> I don't pay attention to these things. Um, no, okay, so then it's probably next next week. Oh, Tracy says something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tracy, thank you. I now feel like Hi, at, Tracy. Least, at least somebody has listened to something I've tried to say. Uh, okay, so Father's Day is next Sunday, and now I don't remember what I was going to say about it. Uh Oh, yeah, but this happens sometimes on Father's Day as churches will show up and they'll be like, and God is your father. Mm-hmm. And this is the, you know, God is Father's Day for God, too. That can be fine. You know how many people I've had come up to me and go, so my father sexually abused me and beat me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't prefer to see God that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's not helpful. This is why the goddess religions have become such a right. <laughs> such a dry, you know, a growing but, and, demographic. And, and, and it can be the same for Mother's Day. And oh, I've absolutely. Seen, I've there seen have been plenty of abusive mothers too. Oh, so. Mother's Day too. But yeah. uh, acknowledging that the metaphors don't work. That being said, mm-hmm. I have a metaphor. Okay. <laughs> you human, you. <laughs> I have a metaphor that I want to read for you all. This and this would be um, the alternative theodicy that I would propose. He is now up to 62 pages. Uh, yeah. So I will say that, um, I am trying to write this out in a way that is accessible for, um, the general public. Um, the, cause, cause again, these are thoughts that I think are really important for our community here. And I said this before that if nothing else, please can the farmhouse be a church that knows how to suffer well. And that can be a beacon and a signpost for people who are suffering. That means we have to understand this stuff. But I, I've realized, I've, okay, this is probably something that uh, people could use. So I am trying to put this together into a cohesive document that's getting lengthy. Um, but hopefully at some point this summer, I'll have it finished and, and I'll be able to share it with you all. But the alternative theodicy that I would propose, I call the guiding parent theodicy. So again, parents, mm-hmm. because I'm not emphasizing mom or dad. But also, parents is a metaphor, um, and, and God's not a parent, but God can be like a parent, okay? Right. So notice the semantic difference there. 
Um, but we've spent a lot of our time so far deconstructing all the poor uses of theodicy, right? right? And all of the problems with it. And and while I really like deconstruction, it's also it's only fair if we reconstruct something out of it. Absolutely. So, you don't just want to destroy, you want to create. So this this conversation is uh, reconstructing a theodicy. First, there's something to mention that uh, you know, we talked about soul building. We talked about aesthetic, fideism, sapiential. We we mentioned all of these theodicies with free will and providence and all of that. You need to steal hints of truth from all of them. And one of the points I think we made was that don't just absolutely agree with any of these, right. but don't throw them all out either. Mm-hmm. Take take little parts, right? For example, we would go soul building is the idea that God ordains your suffering so that it can help you grow. Well. God ordaining that, that creates a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not even like a moral problem. That creates a theological problem. Absolutely. Okay? But we would also say that when we've suffered, we've grown. Mm-hmm. And that suffering can be utilized to grow. So if you, if you eliminate the part of going like God caused this, right? And instead you go, right. but God met me in my suffering and we move forward. Well, that's kind of like soul building. You stole a hint of truth from it. Right. But you're also not adhering to the whole thing, which is problematic. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you got to say is you got to steal hints of truth from all of these. Um, now, there's a whole a whole section that has to be brought up um, that like transcendence, Eminence, determinism, free will, cosmology, eschatology, all of these things have to be unpacked further. And as I read this, um, this alternative, the guiding parent theodicy, if you're like, well, how does this interact with this? There's, there's a lot more conversation that's happening. We're not going to get into all of that today. And I don't know that all of you would care either because I'm kind of nerdy and I realized that you're already probably bored but you're still here so thanks <laughs> let's be honest like do they just sit here and listen to like music or some other church service <laughs> Maybe they and do. they're just on here they've got the Lutherans on one and yeah, yeah, the Catholics yeah. on the other and us on this screen we just want to make Tyler compare us and see you know yeah feel like you know we're Maybe here someone's actually listening, listening to us <laughs> for sure no. I'm just kidding. A couple of nerds sit together and talk. Yep. I mean, you know. All right. So, uh, so yeah, I'm going to read this. Guiding, <laughs> dang, everyone's busted. Huh? <laughs> Guiding parent theodicy. And this is really dependent on transcendence and eminence. And so in the pattern of a famous teacher that I've read a lot about, this is what I would ask after we've had all of this heavy conversation. To what can this be compared <laughs> which is an allusion to Jesus if you didn't pick that up. So in the tradition of parables, I would say that this alternative theodicy is the like the experience of a healthy parent. A couple key words there. Mm-hmm. Like the experience, it's a metaphor of a healthy parent. And so we would again have to determine what good and healthy parenting is. But here it goes. A child is the result of the parent reflected in their image and influenced by their being. The role of the parent is to guide the child. Therefore, the healthy parent respects the freedom of the child. In doing so, occasions of failure are certain. The child will fall, experience pain, make unfixable mistakes, rebel, and possibly cause harm to themselves and others, possibly even to the parent. The parent, however, does not stop tirelessly pursuing their beloved child. Just as a child can never escape the parent's love, the parent, even from a distance, stays imminently present, always calling the child towards goodness. Yet, the method of a parent drawing their child to goodness cannot happen by force nor by removing the child's self-agency and doing their life for them. The parent can only draw the child to goodness by displaying the kind of life and carrying the child from a present yet autonomous distance, only then can the child be guided to that good fullness for which they are intended. The parent does not rejoice at the child's suffering, nor does the parent ever emphasize the good that may come from such suffering. 
but in allowing the child to discover the world for themselves, they know the possibility that suffering may befall them. The parent hopes for perfectly good experiences, but walks with the child in whatever landscape their freedom takes them, constantly honing their trajectory as supportively as possible until their story can exist in fully realized goodness. Thus, the nature of the parent will be known, the nature of the child will finally and completely be synonymous with that nature, and the process of their story will be finished. Now, the the hope here is that this can move us towards theoretical satisfaction, right? So we looked at the various theodicies that are common in our culture, and we've seen how, how important it is. The way that your worldview approaches your suffering is going to impact how you relate to it. So we want, we want something that in theory, right, in intellect, in mentality is helpful. Uh, that's also tenable. That makes sense, you know, compared to logic and metaphysics and inductive reasoning and all of that. But we also have to have something that can help promote the response to suffering that will bring healing, right? So as, as we're looking at this, you know, first of all, it's a metaphor. So it's, we're going, it's like a healthy parent. So it's a metaphor in a way. Um, and so there's going to be holes in it. And we could sit here and we could, we could pick out where like, eh, I don't know about that. But the, the real question is, is it at least better than the common theodicies we've been handed? And at most, does it have the potential to promote suffering well? So that's, that's what we have before us. And um, within this, a lot of this is from my perspective, right? So as a parent of children, I see how I engage with them when I'm in my healthiest form. And that actually gives me a lens through which to see how a transcendent being might be interacting with suffering here. And so we're sitting this between determinism and free will and cosmology and eschatology and transcendence and imminence and all of these different layers that we've been exploring thus far, they're still really important and they still have to make sense and they still have to be compatible and coherent with our understanding of the universe. I think this does that, but now we have to go, how, how does this actually promote something healthy? And again, you know, when you think of God, you're using metaphors and not all the time are, are they going to be perfect. Sure, let's try to leave that a little bit to the side here. How, how does this metaphor, how does this parable help us move towards practice, pragmatic, tactile interaction with the suffering that is inevitable? For me, uh, I... I watch how I go, I can't do my kid's life for them. And dang it, it's going to cause them to suffer. But I won't let that be the end of the story. Right. And so I, I, how, how do I play the long game where it's like, I got to help take you to where I can't take you myself. I, I can only inspire you and influence you to go there yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that metaphor works for me because of that, because I've, I've, I've seen it in my life and there might be other metaphors that are better for you. Um, what I, so, so somebody just asked if I could send that to them. Um, what I'll do, I'll, I'll post that on Facebook. Um, when I post the audio today. I'll, I'll just put that in the in the uh, comments for it because it is easier if you can actually look at it uh, and and go back and parse through all the different things. Um, so that's the theodicy of the guiding parent. Um, is there anything that we missed? I don't think so. I think the important thing to take away to me from this uh, metaphor of the parent is the idea that the child, which would be us, still has the agency. You know, we ourselves yeah. have the agency, um, and yet we are in within that free will of, of our own agency, our own autonomy. We are then guided and, like you said, 
you with your children, you would suffer along with them. You want to help them mm-hmm. become better, and yeah. yet you don't cause suffering to them. So we have autonomy, and yet we also see imminent can, in can that. I, can I break in there? Because yes, there's an important thing: is okay. not only does God not cause the suffering yes. in this perspective, doesn't cause God it. doesn't rejoice at it. No, right? And right. the same no way, more than a parent would. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. You know, Landon or Torin or even Quinn at mm-hmm. this point does something and I don't go like, ah, that's great because now they're going to figure this out. I go, exactly. man, that sucks. Yeah. Let me, let me hold you. You wish they could learn it in a healthy way, but unfortunately. But sometimes they can't. Sometimes and, they don't. And I think it's important to go, God does not rejoice mm-hmm. at your suffering. And so put this into the context of right now. We are watching conflict, conflict on a mass scale. Yeah. It's, things are going to be different. I do not think that God ordained anybody's suffering in the midst of this Absolutely in order not. to bring about change. Right. And I also don't think God went, well, those are the decisions they made with their free will. And, you know, a good thing, because now look what's going to happen. I think God goes, I'm here in the midst of this with you. Right. And in all of the complexity and all the ambiguity mm-hmm. and all the difficulty, I'm here. Mm-hmm. That's important. That's the imminence part of it is right. that God doesn't just stand off into the distance and, uh, you know, he's not the puppet master in the sky. I said, exactly. I said he, Mike's going to yell at me for that. Uh, <laughs> not the puppet master in the sky, but also, you know, not there kind of coming in and going like, ooh, if I, if I make this person suffer, then this good thing will happen. None of that's going on. Right. And this is where Lamentations is going to be so important, so stinking important. Yeah. Because what Lamentations does is it shows us all of this. Mm-hmm. It puts it on display. It gives us that theoretical satisfaction of, of how we can understand God and suffering in the world. But then it also shows us how that response has to work. And there's some surprising things in Lamentation. And I know you've read I have. about all, mm-hmm. a lot of this. Are you going to lend me that book, by the way? Yeah. In fact, w- w- what I would encourage everyone to do is go read Lamentations. I know mm-hmm. I said this a couple of weeks ago, too. Yeah. Go read Lamentations. And there's a particularly good book by Kathleen O'Connor. Um, called Lamentations and the Tears of the World that uh, excellent, it's not written from the perspective of theodicy, but it touches on the same subjects. And so I'd absolutely recommend uh, that book. Um, But there's going to be some surprising things in Lamentations, right? Mm -hmm. And if we actually did what Lamentations is showing us, this whole situation with racism and and law enforcement and coronavirus if we want to throw that in there too mm-hmm. it's going to be dealt with differently but we're not doing it right and you know what's sad is lamentations is probably the most neglected book in the bible and oh it's too, too and the, dark and, and nasty the, but Nobody the answers to... for what we need are sitting right there yeah they're right there and we won't even crack it open oh, i want to be interested in this i do kind of want to add to the idea though that in the image of God, it's like not only does God suffer with us, but also allows us to be the co-creators towards that goodness. As we make good choices, mm. we create that good world yeah, my, that is the world that, that God wants it to be. So, I mean, I would say that that is as well. To even put a more positive spin on it, that as human beings, we have the ability to pull this towards goodness yeah, if we make uh, good choices. Yeah. Well, it's, and Mike just said, it does not love to do for another what they can do for themselves. Okay. And that's that's the same idea. Mm-hmm, sure. But in order to believe that, you have to believe that human beings are capable. Yeah, we have to have the agency. We wouldn't be able to pull and that And take this back goodness. to what I said uh, during the racism conversation before yeah. all this. Is prevenient grace tells us that the very gift of being, right? The, mm-hmm. the very grace of this transcendent God is already with everybody. Right. Everybody. That gives you, that should give you a particular bend towards human beings and yeah. human potential. Yeah. Um, and, and the same that we would have with our child is like, I hope that my children are going to do better than me. Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus even points this out in, in like, um, you know, you, you will do greater things than, than I. Mm-hmm. Right. There is this understanding like, keep making it better, keep making it better. And I believe my kids are capable of that. And so if I all only ever do things for my kids, that will never happen. Right. Um, at the same time, when something terrible unfolds, sometimes I got to sit there and go, let's see how they do it. And I trust them. Mm-hmm. I trust how they're going to they're gonna pull this off. 
Um, and if we allow creatures and sentient beings to make those kinds of decisions, we are going to get better. We, we are going to have more to offer. Um, but I, I think that's important right now. I also think it's realistic to scroll through social media and go, cancel humanity. <laughs> Whoa. We are not doing well with all of this. Uh, and, I, and I critique that about both sides, by the way. Oh, um, uh, yes. I would be really interested to see what everyone would vote on, on what uh, like political affiliation you think I have. <laughs> uh, I think they'd be surprised. I don't think you have one, do you? Well, now you just ruin the potential. Oh, I'm sorry. Gosh, darn! Well, no, I think it. I think it'd be interesting because I do. I do think both sides are worth critiquing with all of that. But the the deal has to be like, okay, we're in the midst of suffering, and we have to have a way to get through this that actually honors the person. Um, so that I think this this theodicy that's what that's for. That mm-hmm. that's uh, what that's meant to do. But um, Lamentations is going to draw this out into some really practical things for us to do. So next week, we actually will get into, here's like literal steps based on the book of Lamentations. We are in discussion right now. Uh, Lamentations, just talking about that, could easily take four weeks. Um, So we're trying to decide, do we try to cram it all into one week or do we break it up? Um, But... The reason this is a problem is because we have some good news. For those of you who are still listening and are still with us, uh, we are, unless something strange happens um, with a shutdown, we will be back in session at the barn with everyone starting on July 12th. Um, so we are going to be limited on... <laughs> some. Some people are clapping. Some people are not uh so um no so we don't know like so do we we keep going with lamentations and then when we get back we just keep going with lamentations or do we wait to like get into lamentations to once we're all back here and we make it a little thing uh so i don't know i don't know what to do with all that but we'll figure it out maybe you could give them a taste of lamentations and then say yes but you have to pay attention because later on we're going to be finishing this thing yeah maybe Mm -hmm. and i'd be interested what you all have to say like once we get back, what do you want to do? Do you want to get back into Acts? Uh, do you want to do the Lamentations thing? She's spelling it for us, Trisha is. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see that. What did she do? She spelled it. Rev? Rev. Revelations. Rev. Oh. Rev. Oh. <laughs> Chantel said, I think we are going to desperately need Lamentations by July. I kind of like that, actually. Um, We could do that. Let me know what you all think. Um, Next week, we'll at least start, we'll we'll get into some of the Lamentations stuff. Somebody says, don't stop now. I can't see who that is. Okay, uh, so next week, we'll at least start on here, (laughs) and then... um, uh, we'll we'll see where where that goes. Though the problem is we like stopped in the uh, middle of Acts, yeah. <laughs> so we still have like we gotta finish Acts, like fifteen chapters of Acts mm-hmm. to go. Um, so we gotta wrestle with that too. But I am excited to be done with this mess, uh, and I'm excited to have you all in here. Uh, with me, it, just for the fact that it'll cause me to clean up, because right now this place is a mess. Just kidding, it's not that bad, but it's not great either. Um, and I'm excited for some of you who haven't been to the barn to see what's going on on the land. Matt Sager yeah. has been hard at work uh, uh, doing stuff on our property, and it's looking good. Um, but yeah, I feel like I have a lot more gray hair since I saw some of you. So maybe maybe uh, maybe my wisdom will start coming through <laughs> one day. The real problem is I haven't had my wisdom teeth yet. I thought you got one. I remember no, one wisdom it, tooth came through. No, it, it never even happened. Oh, really? So, that didn't even happen? Oh, geez. Well, yeah. I, that's why I'm not very smart is I haven't mm-hmm. had my wisdom teeth. There you go. You know? We're just placating at this point. Anybody uh, got any last questions, thoughts, comments, concerns? Ideas, questions, advice. 
Go ahead, Tracy. What was that? Tracy York, I, I didn't I didn't see what you said. Could you could you uh could you say that again, please? I didn't hear. <laughs> Are you just messing with her? Absolutely. <laughs> is she even still on there? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, there she is. Tracy's right Tracy. here. Tracy. Uh, I was just messing with her, but uh I need She's having, having technical, technical difficulties <laughs> and spelling difficulties, apparently. <laughs> Just kidding, Tracy. I, I'm allowed to give you a hard time, right? Okay. Um, okay, and no, no thoughts from anyone? Speak now or you'll have to hold it until next week. But once we start Lamentations, I'm probably going to shy away from some of the conversation we've done over uh, the first few sessions of this all right we're gonna we're gonna dive in to that book was there anything that we should have brought up that we missed i think we covered that really well oh i think we got everything you know we talked about the the parent metaphor and we talked about how that is a better nuance of theology than the ones that we have been handed from the past sometimes and um and then how as human beings we in the image of god we have that agency to be co-creators with mm -hmm. god towards that goodness which i think is important to point out yeah. because that helps us to feel both empowered um to go through any kind of suffering and also but comforted in the fact that we are not trust stuck figuring it out for ourselves right yeah and that's important all right well uh on to lamentations then we will see you all next week hopefully our audio situation will be a bit better and i'm looking forward to continuing the conversation i would it would be helpful if you read lamentations this week it's five chapters five poems i'm not asking you to make sense of it it should be disturbing upon first read Okay, you won't like it. There's a reason that most Christians either haven't ever heard about the book or refuse to bring it up. But read it and then allow us to enter into that conversation because I think we will be surprised at what it's actually saying. So uh, I will see you all um, next week ready to dive into what we actually do. How do we actually suffer well? And I think Lamentations is going to give us at least most of what we need. I'm really looking forward to this. So we will see you all next week. We'll continue the conversation and grace and peace be with you as you go.